0: The scripture reading this morning is Matthew 26, 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Matt.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Andrew, if I don't know you, and I'm the campus pastor here. and uh, you just heard Tom mention it, but I'll, I'll say it again. I'm, I'm really excited to start sabbatical this week uh, with my family, and I only bring it up again a little bit to brag, but, but mostly, um, mostly I just want to say thank you. And to have a sabbatical like this for a pastor or really any, any field uh, is basically unheard of. And this is such an incredible gift to me and my family and I cannot thank you enough for your generosity and your love and your support uh, in sending us out like this. And it's, it's an honor and it's a privilege to serve with you. So thank you. All right, enough enough gushy stuff. So um, a lot of people ask, as I've, as I've talked with about sabbatical, and a lot of people have asked me, so what are you uh, most excited about for your sabbatical? And I say, not working. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then I say, uh, uh, our family, we're gonna take a trip, to California, the four of us, and go to L.A., drop kids off with Grammy and Pop. Right? Right? <laughs> and uh, they're going to do Disneyland and all that fun stuff. And Becca and I are going to go on a California road trip together. Uh, just the two of us. Yeah. So really what I've been, you know, it's like, like the second honeymoon is what I've had in my mind. Like that's, that's what I want. Because I totally botched our first honeymoon. I just totally botched it. <laughs> And I have been looking for a way to make it up to my wife ever since. So we, I'm, I, like, so the big idea here is I'm I'm a cheapskate. Um, I wish I weren't, but I am. That's just how I was raised. Thanks, mom and dad. Uh, I hate I hate spending money. And uh, so I went super cheap on our on our honeymoon, uh, like re- like really like really cheap. Like we stayed at my bo- my dad's boss's house for our honeymoon. Right? You remember that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think we we went out to dinner like once or twice, and the rest we like bought groceries and made it ourselves. <laughs> um, I didn't picture giving this with Becca sitting right here, so <laughs> let's re- rethink that maybe. But uh, <laughs> so I really I really hate I really hate spending money. So when I read a story like this, like we just heard Matt read, and I'm I'm kind of like team disciples Judas just in my gut. Like I I get. Like, get where they're at. And, and if you know the last week of Jesus' life at all, you know being Team Judas is not a good thing. You shouldn't take that away from this text. But just just think about it with me for a second. So, so the woman in our story who, who pours this oil on, on Jesus' feet, like, scholar, you know, it's hard to know for sure, but scholars estimate that this was about a year's wages in value. A year's wages in value. What would you spend a year's wages on? There's not probably a lot that you would do that. It's like, and then it's just gone in a moment. I mean, outside of Vegas, you've never seen someone lose so much money so fast. She pours it out and it cannot be used again. It's gone. So I get why the disciples are confused or even like angry, I get it. But they're 100% wrong, 100% wrong. And you know that because of what Jesus says. And he basically says, what this woman did for me will be remembered Forever. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about her. So I had to ask myself, so what am I I missing? And then I had to ask myself, okay, if that's my reaction, am I being stingy with Jesus? Am Am I being cheap with him? And not just with my money, but my time and my attention and my affection, my relationships, with my work, with my plans... Do I hold back from him and feel justified? Am I more like the woman of our story or like Judas? And hopefully as you're thinking, you're beginning to ask yourself that question too. So let's, let's find out together. If you, have, if you have your Bible, I'll pull it out. I'll turn to the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, chapter 26. It's where we're going to be this morning. And just to kind of remind you where we, where we are and where, we, where we've been, this is week 50, in Matthew, which is crazy, right? 50 weeks. And we've, what we've tried to do is, is kind of break these up these, these series, into little mini-series to make Matthew a little more manageable. So we're starting this week the last turn in Matthew, the king's triumph. And <clears throat> basically from here on out, the cross is looming large over every story. Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer to the crucifixion. And uh, like Randy and, and Tom said, this is also the first Sunday in Lent, and, and I hope that you can participate with us in that, uh, in this season together, and gra- grab a, a Lenten devotional on your way out this morning. It's, it's an amazing resource. But, but the cross is looming large here. It's looming large over this story. It's, it's how the story begins. It's, it's Tuesday of Holy Week for Jesus and his disciples, and, and Friday he will die. So Jesus says to his disciples at the beginning of this chapter, in two days it's the Passover, and then the Son of Man. Will be crucified. That's the backdrop statement over everything else you're going to hear. Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows. And I cannot imagine where that puts Jesus emotionally in this moment to know that you're going to die this awful, gruesome death. You're going to be betrayed by the people you love and care about, right? Your, your best friends in the whole world. He knows all of this is coming, and yet he's all alone. No one understands. This is like the hundredth time, it feels like, in Matthew. Jesus has told his followers, I'm going to die. He's doing it again. But I'm not sure the disciples even believe him anymore. He said this so many times and then not died. My guess is they're thinking, I, mean, I don't know what he means, but, it, but it's, he's not, it's fine. He's going to be fine. And after the last few chapters, if you've been with us, Jesus talking about his role as the judge at the end of time, over all the world, they're thinking, you're Superman. You're not, you're not going anywhere. You're, we're, it's, it's all uphill from here. We're all, we're all good. So when he says to them, I'm going to die this week, my hunch is the disciples are shrugging it off or confused or they don't, they don't get it and they don't take it seriously. But Matthew makes this a little different for us. Uh, Jesus says this and then Matthew actually gives us this peek behind the scenes at what Jesus' enemies are actually doing, how they're actually scheming against him. In verse 3, you, you, they almost like creep out of the shadows and, and meet together. And they talk about how are we going to get Jesus. And he's in Jerusalem now. He's on our turf. We can, we can get him now, but we cannot do it publicly. So even they know Jesus is wildly popular, even in Jerusalem. And if they grab him in broad daylight, it could start a riot, which isn't good for anyone. So what they need is some kind of inside information. They need someone on the inside who can tell them when and where Jesus is going to be at all times. Something like a traitor. Uh, but hold on to that thought. So then there's like this scene change away from them, and, and suddenly as, as the reader, you're just in the living room with a guy named Simon the leper. That's verse 6. Uh, they're, in, they're in Bethany in his house, the town of Bethany, which is Jesus' home base when he's in Jerusalem. He doesn't stay in the city. He stays in Bethany. And Bethany, I think, is a place of comfort for Jesus. We, we, we often find him there. Uh, some of his best friends uh, lived there. If you know John's Gospel, you've got Mary and Martha and Lazarus are, are in Bethany. Uh, so this is this is a place of comfort, I think, for Jesus. He liked to stay there, and, and it's some kind of casual dinner. Is what I picture in my mind. Just just friends. There's good food. There's laughter. I I, I don't really know, but that's that's what I picture in my mind, and and then. Simon the leper is hosting, which is a sad name, right? I'm Simon the leper. It's like you don't want to be known as Andrew the asthmatic. Hi, I'm Andrew the asthmatic. <laughs> and it's you know at this time to be known as a leper was a deeply shameful thing. I mean, it was socially, it meant you were an outcast. And so it's interesting that Jesus is having a party at this guy's house, and it's it's just classic Jesus, right? He just loves he just loves bucking the trend and social convention, throwing all of that out. Some people actually wonder if Simon is someone who's been healed by Jesus and it was known for his leprosy but is now healed and uh, that would make a lot of sense too. Uh, anyway, so, so everybody's having a good time at this dinner and, and suddenly this woman walks, walks in and, and she's wearing an alabaster flask around her neck, I think, filled with oil. Uh, women at this time in, in particular would wear oil around, around their neck and you've got to remember, this is before running water and soap and deodorant. And so smelling nice was especially hard. And so you would wear this around your neck and you would open it a little bit and it would let out a, a nice fragrance. And on a bad day, you'd open it a lot and it would let out even more <laughs> fragrance. But they're very expensive. They're very expensive. And, and depending on what oil was inside, they could be incredibly expensive. And this woman seems to be on that end of the spectrum. It's some kind of rare oil, ointment she has, maybe imported from another country. And it's very, very uh, expensive. It's very extravagant. And she, and she walks over to Jesus. She comes and she walks over. And Jesus is reclining at, at the table. And if you've uh, studied kind of this, this Mediterranean culture at the time, you would, you would sit or, or almost lay down on the floor when you were, you were at the meal. So he, he's low onto the ground, and she kind of comes up behind him. Uh, and she takes off her flask, And she breaks it. She breaks the top. And she pours everything, all of it, onto Jesus' head. And suddenly the conversation stops and everyone's jaws hit the floor. (laughs) Now, let's pause there for a second. Like, it's easy to read a story like this without really stopping to think, like, how did she get this flask? You know, how long did she save to get this thing? Or how much work did she do? Or, or what did she deny herself for years to, to be able to afford this flask? Was it a family heirloom maybe passed down for generations? A precious family heirloom to her. And, the, and then in and then one second, all of it is gone, never to be used again. And yet in that moment, you get the sense that, she's, that there's a single-minded, there's nothing else matters to her. She wants Jesus to have this thing. No no doubt, it's absolutely precious to her. And and it becomes a metaphor, doesn't it? It's like her whole life. She's saying, Jesus, take take it. Everything that's precious to me is yours. No questions, no regrets. Just, Jesus had that effect on people. And, And he still does, doesn't he? But those closest to Jesus, the ones who are friends with him and have worked with him for years and have known him, the best, the disciples sitting around the table, they look at this and they don't see it that way. They don't understand where Jesus is going. They don't know why this moment is such a big deal to him. They cannot fathom why this is so moving for Jesus personally. They're watching this happen. Instead, they're indignant. They're frustrated. Verse 8, why this waste? How many poor people could we have fed with that? And I had the same question, except I was less holy. It was like, how many mortgages could I pay off? How many, right? How, many, uh, reti- how, many, how much retirement could I have put that toward? How, how about a 529 college savings account? Anything but on the floor, right? Anything but that. And it reminded me of the barbecue story about the American Royal last year. Did you guys, you guys remember this? So there was this huge event in Kansas City tons of barbecue for the event, and there was a lot left over. I think this was last fall. And the organizers of the event thought, well, we've got all this barbecue, and well, let's not let it go to waste. So they got a bunch of charitable organizations together and said, why don't you guys distribute this to the homeless all over the city? And it's, you know, it's this amazing barbecue we've got. Why don't, let's send it out. And then some health officials showed up, right? And because they said the food was not from a permitted establishment, whatever that means, and they couldn't ensure it was safe, they put it in a dumpster, and to make sure no one went in after it, they bleached it, they covered it in bleach, so no one could eat it, right, and it's it's, it's this reaction right here, you're feeling it right now, so everybody goes hungry, And and it's, you know, it's like, I get it, in an effort to be safe, but, you know, starving isn't safe either, so let's, you know, balance that out, but you feel the waste, like these hungry people, and it's barbecue, it's the most beautiful thing. <laughs> like, even if no one ate it, don't ruin it. Like, just admire it. Uh, right? This is how the disciples are feeling when they see this happen. We could have done so much with that. Why this waste? But look at verse 10, here's what Jesus says. Aware of this, he says, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, if you're the disciples and you hear Jesus say this, it's going to sound, it's got to sound insane. Because for a guy like Jesus, who for his entire ministry has basically lived hand to mouth, I mean, he is not a person of means at this point in his life. And a person who routinely asks others to give away half of their wealth or more to the poor, to, and then come and follow him. And for a person who just a chapter ago said, when he comes to judge the world, right, he says, uh, how you treat the least of these, my brothers, the poor, is how you've treated me. For that person to say, well, the poor you'll always have with you, what do you do with that? It's like, what? Is Jesus changing his mind? Is he pulling a 180? Is he just ignoring poor people now? I'll just forget about that. I don't, I don't think so. For Jesus, there's something about this moment that puts everything else in second place. Everything. Financial prudence, social convention, even love and care for the poor. There's something happening right now in this story that will never happen again. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus says she and she alone has prepared me for what comes next. Not my disciples, not the other followers of Jesus, just this woman. And for the most important moment in the whole Bible story, the crucifixion of the Son of God, the turning point of human history, right? The human race pivots on this moment coming. I truly believe that. And this woman, whether she's totally aware of it or not, in her love for Jesus, serves him and prepares him for the very reason he has come to earth in the first place. She and she alone. And in Jesus' mind, when this happens, he basically says, you cannot put a price on that. That's why he says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And like I said, here we are, 2,000 years, 6,000 miles from Bethany. And after billions of retellings, of the story of Jesus, one of which brought you and me here this morning, today, and we are still talking about her. And there's still parts of me that I don't fully comprehend what she's hoping to do in this moment, but I'm in awe of what she does. I'm in awe. And the disciples eventually are too, all except for one, Judas. One of Jesus' closest friends on earth one of the 12 inner circle disciples. And for him, this story, this moment is the last straw. And most of you probably already know this. Judas is one of the most famous Bible characters, but for all the wrong reasons. One of the worst betrayers in, in human history. And for him, this moment is when he decides enough is enough. I'm going to turn my back on Jesus. Look at verse 14. So It says, then, then one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And and to this day, I still have no idea why Judas does this, what he's thinking. I have no idea. I don't know if he's fed up with Jesus, the meek and mild Messiah who keeps talking about dying. And he's like, I'm done. I don't know if he thinks Jesus is resigned to defeat to the Jewish and Roman leaders, and so he's deciding to cut and run. I don't know if he's afraid Jesus is going to get him killed too. So he makes a deal to save his own skin. Honestly, I, I, I don't know, but this moment, when he goes to the chief priests, it's, 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 some, it's some of the saddest literature you can read. He says, "What will you give me if, if I deliver Jesus to you?" He doesn't even name a price. You ever notice that? <laughs> right, this kind of inside information and access is exactly what Jesus' enemies need. It was very valuable to them. Judas does not leverage that position at all. It's like he's trading in a car. This is what you say when you're trading. <laughs> you're trading in an old. What do you give me for it? Just, just whatever, whatever it is, I'll take it. Just take it off my hands. I don't want it anymore. I never want to see it again. Thirty pieces of silver is what he gets. And again, we aren't, we don't know this for sure, but most scholars think that the equivalent of that today would be like 50 bucks, 100, maybe, 100 bucks for your soul. Judas does this thing, this incredibly evil thing, and he basically gets nothing in return, nothing. And, and Matthew, who's you know, arranging this and writing this, I, I think he, he wrote this account, and he wanted us to see these two stories together He wanted us to see a woman who would spend lavishly, extravagantly on Jesus, everything she had, next to a disciple who turns his back on Jesus for next to nothing. It's like Matthew's giving us this choice in life as we read the story. He's saying, You can either anoint Jesus with everything you've got, or you can sell him for nothing. You can anoint him with everything, or you can sell him for nothing. And that's it, there's no middle ground. Pick one. There's extravagance or there's betrayal. There's everything or there's nothing. You could crown him or crucify him. You can be Judas or the woman. And he's holding this mirror up in front of us and he's asking, who do you see? As you read the story, who do you see? And I want us to do the same thing. And before we can answer that question, there's, there's three lessons I want us to see from this story to take with us this week. Three ways we can be thinking about this. And here's the first. The first is Jesus wants everything from you. That's the first. You cannot miss it out of this story. Jesus wants everything from you. This is not rocket science, I, I know. This woman gives such an extravagant gift. And Jesus said, you'll still be talking about her. Thousands of years later, she held nothing back. And she's a picture of what Jesus really wants from us. Everything. Now, here's why I think that's important. This is a unique thing to Jesus. Okay, you can read Muhammad in the Quran or Buddha and and they don't ask for everything. They ask for obedience. They want to persuade you to a certain way of life, but they don't ask you to love them with everything you have. They say, listen to me above all others, but they never say, love me above all others. This story is showing us there's no gift too extravagant. There's no cost too high. There's no affection too strong. There's no sacrifice too big. There's nothing you can offer to Jesus that he will turn around and look at you and say, Whoa, too much. Nothing. He wants it all. But we often bring just the opposite mindset when we come to Jesus, don't we? We say, Jesus, tell me how much is enough, and then you'll leave me alone. Like, where's the line? What's the dollar amount I need to pour out at your feet and then not a cent more? And then we, I, at least I do, we, we make these deals with Jesus in our mind, even sometimes without, without articulating it. But like, Jesus, you can, you can have my tithe. You can have my weekly, my monthly offering, but you cannot have my savings account because that's for me. Jesus, you can have my Sunday morning. I'll, I'll show up, but you cannot have Monday. That's mine. If you're a student here this morning, you know, you can have my Wednesday night. You can, have, you can have that, but you cannot have my popularity at school. I've worked too hard to get that. Jesus, you can have my words. I will pay lip service to you, but you cannot have my heart. You know, when, <clears throat> when Becca and I were first dating, um, sorry for all the me and Becca stories, but oh well. Um <laughs> when we first started dating, which which feels like a million years ago right now. Uh, So many things away, like before kids and budgets and jobs and houses and car maintenance, right, and all that stuff uh, that that happens in married life. I I remember feeling like there was just nothing I wouldn't give her. There was no gift too extravagant, except for a a honeymoon, except for that. (laughs) But I... Except for that. There was nothing I wouldn't give her. <laughs> there was nothing, you remember this, you know this feeling, there's nothing she could ask me to do that I wouldn't do. And that was the moment I knew, okay, we, we should get married. Let's make it official because she, everything I have, she, ar- she already has. It's already happened. So let's get married. You know, and I, and I you know take my money, my future, my debt, <laughs> My freedom, my love, my plans, my frailties, take it all. It's yours. And it wasn't out of compulsion. Do you understand? It was because after having met her and fallen in love, I could not imagine another way to live. I was done. It was it. This is not unlike what Jesus is asking of us here. It's almost romantic It's that intense. Do you you feel that for Jesus? Anything like that? Anything approximating that? Maybe you've been a churchgoer for a while. You've been coming and, and you get that Jesus wants everything in theory. Like you can say that and it sounds true. But do you want him to have everything? Do you give him things willingly in your life? Does it bring you joy to bring him joy? Let me ask you it a different way. Most people in this room, is my guess, if I asked you, do you love Jesus, you would say yes. But do you like him? Do you like spending time with him? Do you like getting to know him? Do you like giving him good things that you know he wants? Do you like listening to him, obeying him? Do, you know, do we have, could we ever be like this woman? He wants everything from us. Do we, do we want to give it to him? Okay, second, second thing. Nothing is wasted if it's given to Jesus. Nothing's wasted if given to Jesus. Now, think about it with me. We, we waste all kinds of things. We waste time and money and relationships and opportunities. We, we, we waste opportunities to love our family, our kids, our spouse, our friends, our, our coworkers. workers we can probably all think of times we've done that. We, we've, we've waste moments to enjoy beauty like a sunset or a sunrise or an amazing view. We spend money on dumb things. We watch hours of television, right? There's, there's literally like a landfill growing around each one of our lives. Like we're just wasting stuff. There's nothing wasted when given to Jesus. When you give to him, he, he multiplies it a hundredfold. This, this is why you get these metaphors from Jesus where he says, give me the smallest seed of faith and watch what I do. You see that? Whenever, he te- whenever Jesus teaches, you see this, right? Give, give me the smallest, most insignificant act of obedience and watch. Give me the widow's might. Remember that story of an offering and watch what happens. This woman gave of our story, she gave him her most prized possession and he turned it into her legacy for thousands of years across hundreds of languages. This is what Jesus does. You give him your stuff and he does amazing things, things you could never do. But whatever we keep from him, whatever we don't give to him, whatever we withhold or control, all of that stuff is wasted, ultimately. And this is one of those paradoxes of the Christian life. The life in Christ, you can only keep the things that you give away. That's how it works. You can help your retirement fund grow. You can worship it, think about it, give all your access to it, and it will grow. But it will grow without Jesus. And your kids, they might be successful and hardworking and get into the right school and get the right job, but if you, if you can't give them to Jesus, you might keep your health for a little while, but in the end, you'll die without it all. A few weeks ago, Tom put it this way. He said, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it. We all die empty-handed, so why not empty your hands now? and give it to someone who knows what he's doing. Listen, if you're, if you're like me, I, I have to say this to myself. If I, even if I want to hold on to things, I will ruin them. It's what I do. Or squander them, or die glued to them, be ruled by them. I know me too well not to say this. I need someone else to guard my priorities and give them, and manage my family and my work and my time and my money and my heart. He's, he's going to do better stuff with all that than I ever could because nothing's wasted when given to Jesus. Finally, and and most importantly, is that no one deserves more than Jesus. No one deserves more than he does. Sometimes, at least for me, when we talk about, you know, giving it all to him or sacrificing it all for Jesus and all that stuff, uh, you can walk away thinking, is Jesus just a huge narcissist, right? Is he this... uh, does he have this huge ego that needs constant stroking, and that's my job? Or is he like this king who demands that we bow down before him and says, you have to bow down, you have to love me best? Jesus isn't like that at all, and you see it in this story. This picture of anointing, this, this language of anointing, it's, it's when you would pour oil on someone's head. In, in the Bible, this is a picture of royalty, generally, This is how you coronate a king. It's part of the ceremony. This this is supposed to be a moment of celebration, an accolade, and power. And even though the woman's gift is is extravagant, we've already established that Jesus doesn't look at it as a symbol of his rise to power. Did you notice that? He sees it as the first step in his descent to death. He says, "This this is for my burial. This is for me dying. And I... Think about it this way: What what's the most expensive, extravagant, over-the-top gift you've ever received in your life? Take a minute. Think about it. What's the most expensive gift you've ever gotten in your life? Maybe it's like a car or a piece of jewelry. Uh, maybe it's a college education. <laughs> and then what? What if I took that question, I expanded it out, and I and we asked the super rich and powerful of the world? Okay, what is the most extravagant gift you've? ever received, and that's where we would get answers like a yacht, or a vacation home, or a palace, or I got a treasury all to myself. You want to know what one of the most expensive gifts Jesus ever got, King of the Universe Jesus, ever got in his life? It was oil for burial. See, make no mistake, what this woman does in the story, it's amazing. It's awe-inspiring but she is not the most extravagant giver in this story. There's only one person in all of history, one person who gave everything for someone else, everything. Who left his throne to become like us, who died on a cross, was buried like a criminal, and rose again on the third day, right? This woman broke an expensive jar and poured out expensive oil. Jesus submitted his body to be broken for us and poured out his blood to save anyone and everyone who would believe in him. There is no one who deserves everything like Jesus. No one. No one more worthy of our worship, our affection. No one more worthy of our devotion. So anoint him with everything. There's nothing in your life that he does not want. And there's nothing you can give him. He will not give back to you a hundredfold. Let's pray to him now. Father, we do thank you for the extravagant gift of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray as an overflow of how you love us, this picture you give in this story, pouring yourself out for us. May that inspire us to give everything to you in return. There's no one like that in the world who offers us this gift. May we turn it back and give it back to you. Submit it to your plan for your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.